0: Hello, and thanks for joining me for another episode of the History of Christianity. I'm Bertie Pearson. I'm the rector of Grace Episcopal Church in Georgetown, Texas, and I've also spent the better part of the last decade teaching church history at the Iona School for Ministry and occasionally at the Seminary of the Southwest. It's great to be with you. Last time we talked about the sacraments, how they have this dual nature of being an exterior sign, this physical experience of the world, and an inner sanctifying grace. So they have an outer part and the inner part. Outer part, bread, wine, oil, two people, hands, words, all these things we're pretty familiar with. But what is the inner part? What is that sanctifying grace of the sacraments? Houdini in their 1984 classic song, Friends, say, friends, a word we use every day, but usually don't, we don't use it in the right way. You can look the word up again and again, but the dictionary doesn't know the meaning of friends. And in talking about grace, we have kind of a similar problem. Grace is this word that gets bandied about in the church all the time. It's actually the name of the church that I serve, Grace Church in Georgetown, Texas. And yet we don't really do a deep dive into what we mean when we say grace. And it's tricky because this Greek word charis, it means a lot of things. It's basically kind of that which brings you delight in ancient Greek. It can be a person who brings you delight, either their personal beauty or the grace of their actions, the grace of an athlete, the grace of a slam dunk. You can have the grace of a song, a beautiful piece of music. You can have the grace of sweet sleep or a good death. You can have the grace of a religious rite. There are all these different uh, uses of this term grace. It's that which brings us delight. And it's this word, charas, that the translators of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, these ancient Jewish translators chose this word charas to translate a couple of different Hebrew words, hen and hesed, which are related. Hesed is the loving kindness of God, the self-giving of God. So, in a sense, grace is that self-giving, loving kindness of God, which brings us ultimate joy, ultimate peace, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate sanctification, ultimate glory. It is the good gift of God himself. So, grace is not a thing that God manufactures and passes on to us. And as St. Paul points out again and again, it's not something that we buy from God, we earn from God. It's not something that, like, is a reward for good behavior. Instead, for the writers of Scripture, grace is really God's self-giving to us. And for St. Paul, for the most part, grace is Christ. It's the gospel of Christ, the work of Christ, the presence of Christ, the goodness of Christ. This is what grace looks like. So what does that have to do with the sacraments? What does that have to do with whatever is going on with the bread and the wine and the oil and the hands and the two people, whatever it is? How is that self-giving of God, which is joy-bringing and transformative, which is delightful and glorifying and peace-giving and fulfillment-giving, what's going on there? One of the first great theological writers is Irenaeus of Lyon. I've talked about him plenty. He's writing in the late 100s, so not too long after all this stuff went down in Jerusalem. He is the student of St. Polycarp. St. Polycarp is the student of St. John, who wrote the Gospel of John. So he's kind of one generation removed from the generation of the apostles. He is a bishop in the West, in the kind of rural, not important, not wealthy, not cultured regions in uh, modern-day France. Obviously, those are very wealthy, cultured regions these days, but in the Roman world, that was the hinterlands. And he writes several books, two of which have come down to us entirely, others we have as a series of fragments. But in one of his books, The Demonstration of the Apostolic Preaching, this um book in which he tries to summarize the preaching of the apostles. He says something really wonderful. As we're talking about something almost 2,000 years old, you got to pardon the old-timey sexist language. God made man in the image or the reflection of God. And the image or the reflection of God is the Son, after whose image man was made. So, God the Father made humankind in the reflection of God the Son. So, and there's this kind of sense in which you have God the Son is the perfect reflection of God the Father, and humankind is the perfect reflection of, or at least meant to be the perfect reflection, of God the Son. He continues, And for this cause, he appeared in the end of the times, that he might show the image To be like unto himself. So, for this reason, in this age, the Messianic age, the age of the Messiah, Christ appeared that he might show us to be like unto him. We are created in his image, and so then he takes on our form, our limitations, our reflection, our image, so that we might be shown to be like unto him. So, We are made to be these perfect reflections of the uh, image of God, and then we fall away from that and turn to selfishness, to unkindness, to fear, to deceit, to all kinds of stuff. And then Christ comes and takes on our image, takes on the likeness of sin, takes on the form of a slave, so that we can be drawn back to our true nature as Beings created to be the image and likeness of God. This is part of what a lot of the early fathers called deification. And this sounds like the process of becoming a God, and it's not like God zaps you and suddenly you're equal to God, or you're kind of like Zeus or something. Instead, it is this process of returning to our true nature, to being the image of God, and to being the likeness of God being like unto God, being like God. Not being like God in the sense of being the maker of heaven and earth, being like God in the sense of being a perfect reflection of his goodness, his love, his glory, his light, his peace, his joy, taking on or or reclaiming, returning to our original created nature of being the reflection of God. And this is ultimately the point of grace. This is what grace does. This is what grace is for, for the early fathers of the church. In a sense, grace is the description of this process of being brought back to likeness unto God. But it's not something that we do. It's something that God does. Origin of Alexandria, writing in the early 3rd century, says, It is thus that by the unceasing work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, towards us carried through successive stages of progress we are able if it may be so to behold the holy and blessed life of the saints for no noble deed has ever been performed amongst men where the divine word did not visit the souls of those who are capable although for a little time of admitting such operations from the divine word So for Origin, grace is this process of God returning us to himself, returning us to our true nature, returning us to his image and likeness through not our work, but through the work of God the Son, the Word of God, working within us. So grace is the actual operation of this transformation within us. For origin, this is not something that we can take any responsibility or credit for, nor is it ever done as a reward for our good behavior. We don't earn the grace of God. Instead, it is given to us as a free gift. However, we have the possibility of accepting grace or refusing grace. This is the only agency we actually have. We can't convince God to do this. He just does it because he loves us. Instead, we can receive the grace of God and we can say, oh my gosh, how phenomenal. Or we can receive the grace of God and say, thanks, but no thanks. So God is offering us all grace all the time for origin, it's to all, all given constantly. And how do we know if we are accepting that gift or rejecting that gift? Well, the tree is known by its fruits. So you can look at your life and say, is my life a reflection of Christ? So, when people look at me, do they think, oh gosh, there's something weird about that person. Like he's constantly helping others, constantly being patient to others. She is constantly kind, constantly loving, constantly good, constantly an oasis of peace, constantly working to serve other people. Or do people look at me and be like, yeah, pretty normal guy, kind of a jerk, really. I mean, judgmental, arrogant, prideful, just lame, selfish. And that will tell you, not in any way because you are somehow earning God's favor or earning grace or earning your way into heaven by doing all those things, but that shows you whether or not your heart is open to the grace of God. Grace is our salvation, our transformation, our restoration happening in action. It is God doing this within us when we allow him to, when we open our hearts enough to let him. Writing in the third and fourth centuries, St. Augustine of Hippo talks about the existence of Adam and Eve in paradise. What must it have been like to have been face-to-face with God all the time? Adam and Eve were free from death and suffering, ignorance, the corruption of body, the body falling apart, cancer, heart attacks, glaucoma, whatever. He describes that presence of God, that unmediated, being face-to-face with God all the time, as being literally wrapped around by divine grace. But humanity gave themselves over to the sin of pride, this temptation to substitute themselves for God. And in doing this, in turning their backs on God, they fell away from that grace. They turned away from the grace of God and towards themselves. Humanity is still made to be the image and likeness of God. That is our true and essential nature. However, we become enslaved to ignorance, concupiscence, and to death. So ignorance, death, we're pretty familiar with those. Concupiscence is the way in which Augustine talked about our inclination, which makes us turn away from finding satisfaction in God, and instead hoping to find satisfaction in material things, in a new watch or a car, in the uh, respect of someone else, the admiration of someone else, in getting promoted, in getting some sort of worldly uh, accomplishment, like in just the world. We imagine, oh, if I can just get this one thing, if I can date that one person, if I can make this plant actually have tomatoes, if I can do whatever it is, then I will be satisfied. Then I will be happy. I just have to buy this thing or do this thing or achieve this thing, and I'm going to be set. And then we do it, and we're like, oh, I have a bunch of tomatoes, I guess I'll make some salad. Oh, I have a partner now, Well, they're all right. Uh, whatever it is, it never gets us to that place of absolute peace and joy and goodness and satisfaction and wholeness. So we are burdened by this deep dedication to concupiscence. And because of our dedication to pride, because of our dedication to concupiscence, we have what? Augustine calls a cruel necessity of sinning. God doesn't want us to sin. God doesn't want us to be selfish jerks to one another. Uh, God actually wants us to be full of love, full of prayer, full of goodness. But we have given ourselves over to the opposite of those things by turning away from him, by rejecting his grace. In the sacraments, we have a little bit of the experience of returning to paradise. Paradise, in a sense, is wherever God is fully present. And in the water of baptism, there is this intense, in-your-face experience of God the Holy Spirit. And whenever Augustine talks about God the Holy Spirit, he talks in terms of grace. In fact, the word that he uses over and over again in his book on the Trinity, in the Enchiridion, and so forth, for the Holy Spirit is the gift of God. God the Holy Spirit is God giving himself to us and for us, to be with us, to come alongside us, and it is in the sacraments that we meet God in this extremely profound physical and spiritual way. So in baptism, we have this external form of water, and we are plunged down into the water, and we are transformed by the Holy Spirit. Remember last time, Tertullian's description of the body being washed so that the soul may be made clean. Tertullian also says that in baptism, as part of this body being washed, not only are, is sin washed away, but we are also freed from death itself. And we are also, through the power of God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through this action of grace, we are also brought from the body of Adam, the body of this fallen person who is dedicated to pride, dedicated to concupiscence, who is, in a sense, enslaved to sin, has this cruel necessity of sin, and we are brought into the body of Christ, the body of freedom the body of love, the body of goodness, the body of grace, and we are freed from concupiscence, freed from death, freed from ignorance, freed from corruption, freed from sin itself. In the Eucharist, we have this, these physical objects of bread and wine, and we have this interior face-to-face encounter with Christ himself. We consume the body of Christ, we receive the body of Christ, and it begins to transform us, to enliven us, to change us. In all the different sacraments, we are, in a sense, entering into paradise to begin wrapped around by the grace of God and to be transformed by the grace of God to the extent that we are open to that transformation. And this St. Augustine calls an internal and secret power wonderful and ineffable, by which God operates in humans' hearts." Augustine is known as the Doctor of Grace, and he gets deep into thinking about grace in all of its different forms and kinds. So, uh, Augustine's scholarship has kind of divided uh, these into four different experiences of grace or types of grace. So, we have prevenient grace, and this sounds like a fancy theological term. It just comes from um, Psalm 59 his mercy will go before, will uh, prevenient may. So, his mercy will go before me. It's grace that goes before us. So, it's the grace by which God initiates in our soul whatever good we think or aspire or will. This is in, This is from his work, uh, The Inchiridion, which is kind of his basic theology textbook. So, I have this, um, experience in which I see someone who is in need of help. And I suddenly just think like, I'm going to go help that person. To me, it just seems like a decision I make Coke or Pepsi. Hey, I'm going to go with Dr. Pepper, whatever. Um, but in fact, this is God actually working in me. This is the experience of the Holy spirit, the experience of Christ. This is the will of the father working in my heart that even pushes me in that direction. Then we have uh, cooperating grace, which is the grace by which he assists us and cooperates with our will once it's been stirred up by his action. So um, I decide to go help that person, and then God gives me the grace to actually accomplish that good act. But then there are these other types of grace. We have things like sufficient grace. So this for Augustine is the grace which Adam possessed in paradise, the grace that is Uh, just the kind of constant experience of being wrapped in the grace of God, of being surrounded by the grace of God, of being able to just sort of say, yes, I want to do the will of God and have nothing get between you and the will of God. So you want to say, I just want to be an extremely kind person to everyone I meet. And you and I may say that, and then somebody who we find really annoying is asking something of us, or maybe we're really stressed out, or we're late for something, or we have other things on our mind, or hungry, or not too full, or whatever it is, and we turn out not to be very kind in that moment. For Adam, Augustine thinks, he could just will to do the will of God, and then just do it, because he has this uh, sufficient grace. It is wholly sufficient to just follow the will of God. So, when Adam turned away from God, it wasn't because he was burdened with all these kind of crazy distractions and so forth that we are. He actually just made a completely free choice to turn away from God and toward himself. So different scenario. Whatever type of grace we're talking about in Augustine, it's always God's free gift. It's never earned, it's never bought, you're never so good that you get this reward of grace. It is just God giving himself to you, acting within you. It is hesed, it is God's loving kindness shed upon us, transforming us when we let it into our true nature, our true self, which is his image and likeness. But what about those from whom God's grace is withheld? The classic example of this is the hardening of Pharaoh's hearts. So Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, absolutely not, not on your life. And we're told God hardened his heart, making him deny Pharaoh's request. What about those folks? Doesn't that seem radically, wildly, crazily unfair? One can, of course, always say that our standards of fairness are not the absolute divine standards, but regardless, Augustine actually d- addresses this question in his book On the Spirit and the Letter. He says to yield our consent to God's will or to withhold it is for us to do. It's a question of the will. And God so knows how we are going to respond to his grace that he allows us the freedom to either harden our hearts against his will or or to open our hearts and do his will, but it is our choice. So, for all the power of grace, it rests with the recipient's will to accept or reject it, he says. In this text, it's clear that Augustine is saying that this is not God saying, I like Moses, I don't like Pharaoh, Moses is going to get to do my will, Pharaoh is going to fight against me and lose in this horrible way. It is God giving both of them the gift of freedom, because it's only in freedom that we can actually love God. Love can't be compelled for us, and God's only goal for us is love. So he gives his grace to Moses, and Moses says, okay, I will go. He gives his grace to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, not on your life. And God allows Moses the freedom to go and follow his will, and allows Pharaoh the freedom to harden his heart. So God, Pharaoh says, absolutely not. And God's like, okay, your heart's hardened. Moses says, okay, let's go for it. And God's like, all right, your heart is soft. But it's, it's a question of this cooperation between God's offer of grace and our either acceptance or a rejection of that. So what is grace, if you ask the fathers? It is chesed. It is God's loving kindness. It is the presence of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, transforming us. It is the presence of the word of God, God, the son, Jesus giving himself to us and for us and with us. It is the will of the father working within us. It is the action of God transforming our lives for our sanctification. And for the fathers, we meet God in this special way in a sense, in Eden, in paradise, when we come face to face with him in his holy church, when we are encountering God in this incredibly profound, special way in the life of the sacraments, in baptism, in the Eucharist, in the sacrament of reconciliation of a penitent, in the sacrament of marriage, in the sacrament of ordination, in the sacrament of unction, of healing— Next time, we will get more into what these actual sacraments are about in the early church, what what the early fathers and mothers had to say about these things, what they meant to them. But I thought this time it would be important to kind of think about just what that interior grace is, what that actual confrontation face-to-face with God is and how it transforms us. But if we really want the patristic definition of grace, the old-school, proper, lay it all out for us. What the heck are we talking about in grace? Here it is. This comes from Athanasius of Alexandria in his letter 10. This is the grace of the Lord. These are the means of the Lord's restoration for the children of humankind. He descended that he might raise up. He took on himself the trial of being born that we might love him who is uncreated. He went down to corruption, that corruption might put on immortality. He became weak for us, that we might rise with power. He descended to death, that he might bestow on us immortality and give life to the dead. Grace ultimately is the work of God in Christ It's the work of God the Holy Spirit within our hearts. It is the work of God bringing us back to our true selves, the image and likeness of God. It is the action of God the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, transforming us not into radically different people, but into who we actually were created to be, His image and likeness. A little bit about grace. Next time, more of the sacraments in the early church. Thanks for being with me.